Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Merry Christmas season. Hey, it's all year round, right? We remember the reason for the season, the reason for all seasons. Uh, Jesus, thank you, Lord. Um, got our first snow this morning in our neck of the woods here in central, mid, you know, northeast Wisconsin. And so sometimes we have a white Christmas, sometimes we don't. I think we might this year. Um, but anyway, want to direct your attention to our friends up in Canada at Red Pill Prints. They've got a whole page, more than two dozen Stand Up For The Truth items, gear, merch, um, from winter hats to sweatshirts to hoodies and coffee mugs, different kinds, water bottles, a candle, uh, T-shirts. Go to StandUpForTheTruth.com. Click on one word at the top. It says merch. That will take you directly to our friends at Red Pill Prince, who have donated a page on their website to stand up for the truth. So thank them. Thank, yeah, you can do that. You can indirectly, um, some of the proceeds come to us. So that indirectly blesses us as well. A few headlines before we, uh, Mary Danielson and I, talk to our guest, Carl Tykrib. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the Rainbow White House a couple days ago celebrating um, Joe Biden's signing the disrespect, I mean, I'm sorry, technically the Respect for Marriage Act, meaning they're going to disrespect God's ordained natural marriage, how he ordained it, and they're adding things to it, redefining marriage. So I want to thank Owen Strayan, who's been a voice for truth over this last these last several years. He said he shared a picture of the Rainbow White House, and he said, we definitely now live in a theocracy, just so you know. A neo-pagan theocracy. And I will add the reminder that elections have consequences. Over at Harbinger's Daily, a brand new article. The ramifications are serious. President Biden signs same-sex marriage bill into federal law. You're going to want to check that out. Just be ready for what's coming, friends. It's signed. The Senate passed it. The House passed it. Biden signed it. This is the direction they're going in, and it will affect believers Christians, churches, possibly Christian employers. So, one more headline. Cambridge Dictionary now bows to woke, and they changed the definition of woman. That's right. I mean, they, I, I wrote a book in 2017 called Redefining Truth, and boy, I need to go back and just started adding some of this. They're redefining everything now. And so let's keep an eye on those things. But let's get to our guest today. Uh, Carl Tykrib has authored... Reports, books, over 200 articles and essays on globalization. And he's a conference speaker. He's the author of the massive volume, Game of Gods, The Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment. Carl's given lectures across North America. He lives in Western Canada with his wife and children. You can connect with him on Facebook. And we welcome him back to Stand Up for the Truth. Good morning, brother. Good morning. It's uh, a pleasure to be with you, folks. Hey, it's a blessing. You sound nice and clear. We just reconnected with you, so we're thankful to get into the podcast. We're, today, we're going to talk about some of your research regarding the communist and Marxist roots of the modern social justice movement, 
um, how we got here, how it's, it's so de- deceptive, but how it got into American churches. And you wrote a phenomenal uh, section or a couple contributions to the brand-new book from Lighthouse Trails. The book is called A Christian Perspective on the Social Justice, Justice Movement. We've talked about it a, a few times in the last week because it just came out. But, Carl, your section there, the one we want to focus on today and, and really inform people about the world history uh, you're, you called it all for one and theft for all, the fallacy of the social justice movement. So I just want to start by saying um, just the, the research you do, how, how do you put this all together and sum it up the way you do in a handy little chapter? I mean, I know Game of Gods was huge, but this is just it's, it's brilliant the way you took this world history, separated into sections, Marxism, Catholic social justice, um, and then words. You talked about you ended the chapter on um, just getting our terms right. So just tell us a little bit about how you do this. Most of our minds don't work that way. Well, boy, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> most of the time my mind doesn't really work at all, it seems, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love history, okay? Mm. I love history, and I love seeing uh, how history continues to play out. And I guess the perspective that I take is that 30,000-foot overview, that panorama. I love taking the window seat in when I'm flying somewhere because I want to see everything. Mm. And when you see it, uh, kind of that top-down approach uh, you can all of a sudden see patterns and perspectives that sometimes you miss when you're right in the thick of it all. And, and so I've done that with history. I've done that with history and then connecting that into the modern movements of our day uh, and, and seeing how ideas really do have consequences. Mm. If, if, you, if you break it down, uh, the, the, the formula goes like this. Religion informs our philosophy. Philosophy informs our worldviews. Our worldviews informs our arts and culture. Arts and culture shapes society, which in turn is reflected in our politics. Mm. And then if you get the foundation of all that wrong, if your religious perspective, your metaphysical perspective is incorrect, by the time it filters all the way down to the realm of politics, um, you realize that that your politics will be wrong as well, and and of course, I mean that's been the sin battle for for you know all of human history. Uh, when when your when your perspective of who God is is wrong to begin with, uh, taking the approach of Genesis chapter three that we can be as God, not that you know, the, you know that that God is who He is. We would rather say that we will be the masters of our own destiny. Uh, when you take that approach, then the rest of it starts to fall apart. And you can see these patterns emerge uh, in, in, the, in the works of, of, uh, of, of the intellectuals of the last 200 years especially, how all of a sudden these patterns start yeah. to unfold. And now all of a sudden we're living it. And then, and then you write a book uh, on the issues of truth, and now you realize that, oh boy, you know, you could go back and you could add an entire another section to it based off of just how far we have slid since when your book was released in 2017. 
Is it, uh, by the way, kudos, shout out to your book, Game of Gods. You, you, you hit number one in a new category. It's kind of interesting. It's number one bestseller in utopian ideology. I'm not even sure I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it basically, is, from what I understand, it's a category that pits your, your book up against the likes of, uh, of, uh, Brave New World or any of those books that kind of tackle, um, <laughs> An ideological approach to let's save the world. Let's uh, <laughs> let let's do this in our own power, and and brave brave new world. Uh, you know that book definitely definitely takes that approach of, of how you know let's reshape society. This is how it's going to. This is what it's going to look like with with uh, uh, a, a complete change in, in our worldview. And it was done, of course, as a novel, and I'm, I'm kind of off track here a little bit. But nonetheless, <laughs> my book kind of goes up against those ideas and says, mm, no, um, <laughs> there's actually an antidote to these utopian ideas that mm-hmm. come through uh, the world philosophies. And the antidote is Jesus Christ. Amen. And in the process of understanding that, when you begin to see, again, this goes back to your initial question, the parallels... Uh, and, and and the patterns emerge with with the, your, you know a wrong ideology, a wrong religion, a wrong worldview, and wrong in the sense that it, we place man at the pinnacle. Man becomes the center of our own temple, and boy, we we are we run amok when that happens. Mm. Uh, Carl, good morning. Um, your book, I'm making my way through it, and I'm just taking my time because there's so much there. Uh, I love the context that you bring to a lot of these things that, you know, we're like frogs in a pot. We're in the middle of this search for synergy and oneness on so many levels in the culture. Uh, I was making a list and laying it out in front of me, and I thought, wow, if you if you haven't really thought about all the areas in this world that they're trying to put us all together um, it, it really, it really struck me. Um, so I appreciate the context you bring, the dot connecting. It's just wonderful. But I guess I want to dive in quickly on the one for all and theft, all for one and theft for all. You talk about the, um, the Catholic social justice movement. And I, I, you know, having, was a Catholic, uh, most of my life. And, uh, I've always known that there was a <clears throat> Marxist tendency on the, on the part of the popes. And I, I think that's, uh, Something that a lot of people have noticed, but you talk about an encyclical, Pope Pius XI, um, and you say here in reading through it, an unsettling doublespeak emerges. Communism is chastised, yet the free market is evil. Um, in this dialectic, the end result is that certain kinds of property ought to be reserved for the state. And so then you say there's a slippery slope here that has now begun in earnest. Social justice would become the excuse par excellence in calling for a global collectivist. System, because you know, in the West, here the word communism is very unpalatable to Westerners. We grew up in the shadow of the Cold War and bomb shelters, and and now it's been rebranded to social justice. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm looking to see um, what you think about how this plays out. Do, does the average Westerner know that this is pure communism? This is Marxism, Leninism, or is social justice just caught their eye like a shiny new ornament? Good question, and I think for the most part, at least within the Christian realm. We see the language of social justice um, being displayed. That social justice is there for the underdog. Social justice is mm-hmm. there to to uh, help those who've been marginalized. Social justice uh, is is working to make the world a better place. And Christians historically 
we've always been, we, you know, we, we've always said, hey, we, we're on the right side of history. We, we want we want to be on the right side of history. We want to do what is the good. And so all of a sudden, this there's an appeal. There's a sense of, oh, uh, social justice. This is something I can get on board with. Look at what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't think past it. We don't critically analyze uh, beyond the surface of it. And we make the mistake of thinking that Christian compassion and social justice are the same. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not even close to the same. Social justice is a revolutionary technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was honed and well used by Lenin. It was understood within the, the Catholic system of, of moving towards... Now, and you're right, the word communism is not palatable. So the, the language becomes community becomes collective. It becomes, uh, you're, you're working now for a, a social, a general good or a social good. But then when you strip it all down, all of a sudden you're realizing, hold on, um, this doesn't work. We've tried these, these techniques before. We've tried these, these programs. I remember I was at a, uh, a, a major interfaith event back in 2010, it was uh, the G8 World Religion Summit, just as the G8 and G20 has a, I mean, it's either political gatherings. A lot of people, a lot of Christians don't know that there is an interfaith component to it, that world religious leaders get together, usually during that week or the week or two before, and flesh out policies, and then put those forward to, to the world political leaders, saying, hey, look, we need to be on the road of social justice and global governance. And so in 2010, I was at the G8 World Religion Summit, and one of the representatives, I believe it was one of the representatives from the Salvation Army, said to all of us, we need to learn to share one bike in community. Like, no, no, we, this is not how it works. We, we've tried the, the, these little experiments of saying, hey, we only have one bicycle in the village, and we all have to learn to share this one thing together. Um, we have, you know, it's a utopian mindset that says we can we can find the most efficient way to bring everybody to a plane where we're equal. Nobody's ever equal. Mm. Uh, we're not. We're not. Uh, we're, we're not equal in any respects. Um, while we are all born equally from a biblical point of view under the curse of sin, we don't even die equally. There are some who die in Christ, and many who. Mm. reject him and along the way uh, we're not equal in our attributes our our characteristics our skills our talents our bank accounts Uh, we're not equal in our relationships Mm. but the great idea of of socialism marxism leninism is we equal it all out so don't stick your head up because you might all of a sudden find that uh you're no longer, uh, you know, all of a sudden culture says you're not equal to us and, and we'll work to bring you down. And that's what social justice ultimately does. It says we're going to level it all mm. and we're going to make us all equal. Well, but you, we, we don't. And you use the word theft in your the title of this article, All for One and Theft for All. And that's really what socialism is. It's taking from some, I mean, it's wealth redistribution. It's this that's um that's bastardized concept of um equality which you know you might want to use the word equity now that's the one of the key words but you you talk about envy 
in part of your chapter. I thought this is a brilliant quote. You say this concept of social justice, the raising of an oppressed class through the degradation of another class, is a reactionary process based on the arousing of envy. And I thought that's so important. And when you talk about Marxism and contrast that with Christianity, we're supposed to give generously from our heart. We're supposed to be compassionate. God is no respecter of persons. And, you know, yet we've got this ideology that's pushing jealousy, envy, and, and, and that will lead to greed and other things. Talk more about that and how or why we are so confused about this idea. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the, the, the use of envy is so, so important. So uh, I teach a course on, on secular pagan trends at Miller College of the Bible. It's a modular course. And in one of, one of, my, uh, one of my sessions, we break down social justice, and I divide my class up. And I, as a teacher... And now the social justice activist. I am now the change agent. And I go through with my class. I, I, I take uh, about 10% of the class. I push them off to the side and say, you are the super rich. You're the landowners. You're the, the capitalist-based class. Then we have the vast majority in the middle who just want to be left alone. You're the typical worker. You're the typical uh, person who, who's just you're living your life. Then you've got a handful of radicals, and I'm now the leader of that, of that group. It's my job as a social change agent to arouse in the sleeping masses envy and greed aimed towards the higher class that I want to bring down. And so I go through this exercise, and envy and greed become absolutely pivotal in arousing the emotions of the mob, because hmm. that's what it is. It yep. becomes a mob mentality. It's the mob that now dictates what is true. But they didn't arrive there on their own. They didn't arrive at that point of thinking uh, just by happenstance. There had to have been somebody who was already pushing certain buttons, hmm. using certain phrases, pointing fingers and saying, oh, look at that 1%. Uh, we need to bring down that 1% so we raise ourselves up. Here's the kicker. At the end of the exercise, by the time it's all said and done, um, my, my, my 10% or the, let's call it the 1%, they've been ruined. All the rest of the sleeping masses are angry, but none of them ever rise up uh, to a higher position. The only people who really benefit at the end of it all is a social change agent who finds himself on the top of the pyramid. Mm. And that's the point. That's right. Um, we've got to take it's our... A rev- it's a revolution. Yes, we've got to take our first break in, in a minute. But, yeah, you talk about the revolution. You talk about this activism that uh, just naturally arises after, you say, this method of arousing envy disguised as virtue. And you mentioned mob rule, whoever controls the biggest mob through the emotion of the ideal is the one who rules. And aren't we seeing that, friends, in a different category or different venue? And that would be the in American culture, the LGBTQ ideology in that movement. Social change then occurs either through the ballot box or, you say, or the barrel of a gun. It doesn't matter. The mob has spoken and, quote, equality will be enforced. We are talking to Carl Teichrib today 
uh, talking about the inception of social justice ideology. We'll talk more about world history and how we got here when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Carl Teichrib is our guest today, the author of the massive book, the great book, Game of Gods. You can get that on his website and you can get that on Amazon. Um, I want to mention some of the other contributors to the new book we're talking about, A Christian Perspective on the Social Justice Movement, Roger Oakland, uh, Manning Johnson, Cedric Fisher, David Dombrowski, uh, Mary Danielson. Of course, we had Linda Harvey on last Friday. Um, also, Carl Teichrib is with us today. And we're talking about all for one and theft for all and how uh, social justice does not align with the biblical worldview. Mary, take it away. Yeah, we were talking about envy, uh, class envy and that sort of thing, um, and what a huge role that plays in in getting people whipped up for, for justice or what they perceive as justice. Yeah. And I remember back in 2011, we had the Occupy Wall Street movement, and I think that was kind of the beginning of where we're at right now. Um, you know, it was just a protest movement That's against right. economic inequality, the influence of, of uh, money in politics that people didn't like. You're talking about the 1% versus the 99%. But I want to go back even farther. I was mm-hmm. so fascinated by the portion in your book um, about the World Fairs, uh, the Chicago Exposition in 1893. And actually, there were uh, there was one in London quite a bit before that. And how these became uh, temples to technology and materialism and what man can do when they put their hands to it. Uh, we had the Industrial Revolution and people working uh, many, you know, people were just sort of, um, uh, you know, worshiping at the temple of what, like I said, what we can accomplish. But then all of a sudden, after World War One, we find um, that now we're finding more haves and have-nots based on that alone, but the tech, the industrial revolution. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about how progressive progressivism came about after World War One to now as a backlash from these haves and have-nots um, about a hundred twenty five years ago or so? You know, this is great because uh, this is one of those conversations where it demonstrates how ideas have consequences and how worldviews have consequences. So in the 1800s, you had the, the rise of materialism in a significant way. Uh, it was the, the almost towards the end of what we would now call the Industrial Revolution that was in play. Um, the intellectual community had more or less jettisoned Christianity. We were in what would, what would be called modernity. In fact, it's really the, the height of modernity. And uh, the Columbian Exposition, the, the 1893 Columbian Exhibition that was held in Chicago, is a fantastic example. In fact, a really incredible example of all of a sudden man's faith in his works, man's faith in his technology. Um, the, the 1893 World Fair is one of a long line of world fairs. And, and indeed, those world fairs still continue up. We still hold them today, though they don't have that same place marker the way they did culturally uh, 100 years ago or so. And so all of a sudden you had this, this uh, a new sense of, of, of consumerism. In fact, the 1893 uh, exhibition really, really pushed forth the concept of, of what we can now do in our homes, 
Uh, we at that at the, at the Columbian Exposition, uh, it was determined we were going to have AC electricity versus DC electricity. Uh, the Wrigley Spearmint Gum was introduced at that at that event. <laughs> the Ferris wheel, which by the way, the Ferris wheel wasn't just uh, a few you know put a few tokens in and go for this whip de doo ride. Uh, it, it the Ferris wheel itself was massive. Each car on the Ferris wheel held over sixty people, roughly twenty one hundred people an hour could partake in a Ferris wheel. Wow. Uh, it, it was, it was all of a sudden, it was this display of man's uh, ingenuity, his inventiveness, and, and consumerism was a, was a huge part of, you know, you could almost look at that as being the event for uh, American Western-based consumerism. Mm. But at the same time, there was a, a sense of, of we're, we're moving forward to the age of man, the brotherhood of man, because the Parliament, pardon me, the, the, the Columbia Exposition also had within it a special parliament. In fact, it was the very first interfaith parliament. It was the Parliament of World Religions. And religious leaders came together and said, we all need to work together as the Brotherhood of Man. We are looking forward to the next century of the common man. We're going to have all these goods, and we're going to uh, we're going to work collectively together for a better world. We're going to build heaven on earth. Mm. Uh so you have both a secular and a a religious side to this uh, to this uh, declaration that we can put heaven on earth. Well, of course, it doesn't work out that way, and you do have uh, divides. You do have haves and have nots. Um, at the same time, you've got the, the the role of of Darwinian evolution, and so even before World War One. There were theologians who were wrestling with now what does Christianity look like in this new age in this in this changing nature, and so the social gospel movement was birthed not that long after the Parliament of the World Religions and the Columbian Exposition in the in the late eighteen in the late eighteen hundreds, hmm. and the the social gospel movement looked to marry uh, to 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 wed. The, the ideas of socialism, equality, all that goes into this with the gospel itself and through our actions, we could now build heaven on earth politically, socially. And that really opens up the, the, the era uh, of, of progressive thinking, uh, especially after World War I. You have that time period between World War I and World War II where progressive thought really uh, took the intellectual community by storm. You had men like Stuart Chase, who in the very early 1930s, I think it was actually 1930 itself, uh, published his book, A New Deal, which becomes the, one of the influencing factors behind FDR. And The New Deal is, is really a, a type of social justice. Uh, we're going to reorder civilization now that we have all this proficiency and efficiency and technical goods and we can make the world into a better place as long as we have men and women who are able to steer um, steer the culture and steer civilization towards a more collective, uh, uh, more of a collective way of, of thinking and living. In fact, Stuart Chase, at the very end of his book, again, this is, this is the influence, you know, a book that influenced FDR's New Deal. At the end of the book, he laments that why is it that the why is it that that the Russians are the ones who always have the fun of remaking a world, going back to what Lenin and and Stalin were doing, 
because in the 1920s and 30s, the progressive movement on the left looked upon what was happening in the Soviet Union as a good thing. This is our model. This is social justice in action. Um, it is it is the steering and moving the masses along with technology and industry uh, to be able to, to create a brand new world. Mm. Um, Lenin actually made, made a statement, and I'm just going to paraphrase, uh, the, the bottom line was this, we're going to tear everything down, we're going to destroy it all, and then on the, on the ruins, we will build our new temple. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, it really does. <laughs> There's your great reset. Well, and also at the same right. time happening with the rise of all this has to be the sunset of Christianity because you can't have um, the Judeo-Christian worldview and the social justice worldview because we already know what justice means and what the gospel means. When you add social to those, now you are re- even remaking those basic biblical concepts into a humanistic um, you know, construct. And so now we're going to have mm-hmm. this scorched earth policy, and that includes removing Christianity from the public square. If you're going to rebuild the Tower of Babel, you're going to have to keep God out of the equation because it's all about rebellion against God. Right. And this really is a form of, of Babel, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. It really yes. is the idea of, of bringing the world together. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not being brought together under under God's uh under what what he desires, exactly. it's not his will. Right. It's man's will that's being projected. Yep. yep. Yeah. They can be as gods. Um, right. Carl, now I want to jump ahead to how you really kind of dove into this chapter. You were talking about your history and when you were growing up. And it was fascinating, the first couple pages uh, in this chapter. Uh, but I want to focus on when you got to public school, Right. Um, 1970s, and you mentioned, now you're in Canada, we're in the U.S., we had our environmentalism, you know, it was, it was subtle back then. They were starting to talk about pollution and regulation, and uh, Jimmy Carter, I think, was the president. They got the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, going, and we were starting to have some of that just filtered down through the schools. But you mentioned this environmental handbook and other texts such as Pros of Relevance and Worlds in the Making. Tell us about this and how they were reaching the young people, even in the 1970s. Oh, my, yes. You know, what's fascinating is is the, the books in question, uh, especially in the Environmental Handbook, uh, was an outgrowth of Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin, who pushed the very first uh, environmental uh, teach-in, which <sighs> became the first Earth Day of 1970, Jeez. April the 22nd, 1970. And so with this very, very first Earth Day, um, Friends, of the, uh, Friends of, the, of the Earth and Ballantine Publishing put out a, a, a book called the Environmental Handbook, which was distributed to schools, colleges, and universities right across North America. Of course. Uh, Literally thousands of institutions, uh, hundreds of thousands, I believe, close to 20 million Americans partook of the first environmental uh, teach-in slash Earth Day on April the 22nd, 1970. I look at that event as a turning point. Wow. And, and it is a turning point in this, that it rejects, it rejects God as being the Creator, and the book makes it very, very clear that the Christian worldview is the problem, 
And then it speaks about the importance of, of wealth redistribution. It offers these collectivist social justice approaches. Um, it, it, it speaks much about how we need to change our worldview, change our mindset. In fact, even to the point of we really need to, to change our religion. And when you take a look at the, at the change that we see within Western civilization in the last 50-plus years, since the time I was born, basically since the 1960s, late 1960s, uh, it has become, the West has become radicalized. And I look at, at, at events like that first Earth Day and the mm. publishing of the Environmental Handbook, which was used in my school, my high school, mm. and it was also used in high schools right across the U.S. Yep. and Canada, and it was already sowing the seeds in the minds of young people. And this is so important. It sows in, in their minds uh, a, a worldview that, first of all, says that we need to reorder and reshape the world. We need to create what we would call as Christians this idea of heaven on earth. Uh, we're going to now do it in solidarity. We're going to do it by breaking down the old order and instituting new ideas. As a young person, you are now, we would use this term, you are now a social justice activist. Mm. That's what you are. You are now a social justice warrior. And what's interesting is is this really opens opens it up to becoming a Romans one world, because as we all of a sudden bend our knee to creation rather than the creator, uh, God allows us to follow the inclinations of our of our sinful heart, and uh, what, this is one of the things when I do lectures, uh, especially on this subject. Um, I'm and going back actually to your very very first question: How do you how do you do this? How do you pull this, all this together? <laughs> you see you see the big picture. You see the parallel of we worship and serve creation. Therefore, mm. sexual revolution sexual gender change becomes absolutely ingrained within culture. The two walk hand in hand. In fact, you can you can trace how they've walked together since that time period, 50-plus years ago already. Well, talk about another parallel. You mentioned parallels, and I, I don't know that a lot of people have connected the dots on the environmental movement, the social justice movement, but you write a little bit, and you, by the way, guys, Carl condenses this so well in his chapter, uh, The Christian Perspective on Social Justice, in this chapter. Um, in the 1960s, the peace propaganda, what happened, the make love, not war, and the peace sign and all that was, I remember the Pepsi song, Perfect Harmony, I want to get the world to see, remember that? But tell us about how the communists and the Marxists use that to try to achieve their version of social justice. Well, yeah. Uh, again, it goes back to the, there's an appeal to do what is the right. And we want peace. Who doesn't? We want to have harmony in our culture. Who doesn't? Uh, and so there is a sense of the, this, is, this is all of a sudden a moral high ground that we're looking to achieve. But it's not ever set up to be achievable, at least not in a biblical point of view. It's only set up to be achievable when, yes. we, when we harm groups, mm. when we harm uh, a, a targeted segment of society. That is the only way it's achievable, and it's never even achievable then to the rest of society. It's only achievable to those who are working for that, for that change agenda. 
and, and and what we end up seeing then is is that there is a well, it's a rot. There's a rot that occurs within the heart of 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 the nation. Then, mm. uh, as uh, again, we go back to that issue of greed and envy. All this ends up becoming a powerful, powerful tool to move us towards uh, accepting and adopting radical agendas, things that we would never, ever have even contemplated 10, 20, 30 years ago. But now, um, not only do we contemplate it, we push for it. You know, if you would have said, if you would have said um, in the late 1980s that by the time 2022 and 2023 would have come around, we would be asking questions about what is a woman. <laughs> you, you would have been laughed yes. right out of the room. Exactly. I'm offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, You know, we, we have soaked in the revolution and we don't even realize that we've, we are, we are that frog that has, we are at the boiling stage. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, and it has impacted the church just as much as the culture. We've got to take another break already. This is going by way too fast with Carl Teichrib, but I want to quote him before we go to break in what we were just talking about. You say, Carl, the only way of assuring lasting peace in the world from the Marxist perspective is the elimination of capitalism. And then you go on to say socialism was the path to progress. This leftist ideology was solid, solidly embedded in education during the 70s, and from that point on, its fingerprints can be observed in practically all major institutional systems, including schools and churches. When we come back, we're going to talk about the churches and how do we resist, how do we discern, how do we react to this, and how do we continue to promote the truth of the gospel and just God's justice rather than climate justice or whatever other kind of justice they're pushing. More with Carl Teichrib when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Carl Teichrib. Remember to check out his book, Game of Gods. And we are talking about the social justice movement, a Christian perspective. And Mary, you had somewhere you wanted to go to kick off this last segment. Yeah, you know, you mentioned, interestingly enough, the, the frog in the pot, which is on the top of my notes here. Um um, you know, I'm thinking about how we are homogenizing. You talk in the book quite a bit about oneness and uh, synergy and uh, all these things that, that are coming about. And I thought about all the ways we're homogenizing humanity through school curriculums, uh, jargon like it takes a village and community organizers, uh, the PC language, don't offend anyone, everyone talk the same, environmentalism, transhumanism, the liberals seeking a single party rule, you know, to destroy the West, the media, one mind through the media, whatever they tell you, central bank currencies, surveillance, um, the COVID experience, all these things have suddenly come into, um, you know, our, our lives and our, our view to make us all one, and I'm thinking of the end game here in Revelation 17:13, where it says, "These, the kings of the earth, are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast." So, I guess looking at that end game and looking where we are now, what do you, is there anything else 
that you feel is coming up on the horizon or something we should be watching for? Because to me, we could be there tomorrow, if you ask me. But it just seems like, you know, the West, we're still functioning. We're still breathing. We're, we're on life support, but we're still here. So what do you think is the right. next thing? Uh, in terms of, of the bridging of technology and finances, I see mm. central bank digital currencies moving us very strongly towards this concept of a, of a social credit system. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Which, which goes really well with that oneness theme where we all have to more or less integrate our, our ideas. Um, I mean, my goodness, there's a reason why China instituted their social credit system. Mm-hmm. Because it, it forces you to comply uh, and to become nothing more than, than just simply another number uh, in, in kind of in the board. Uh, that, that's what it boils down to. It boils down to this, we strip away your individualism, we strip away your ability to really uh, to, to, to think and operate mm-hmm. differently. My own country, Canada, we, we've watched how uh, even our national politics uh, in the last couple of years, has really pushed this narrative of of uh, you need to, to fit in with the federal with the federal uh, talking points because if you don't, all of a sudden you hold unacceptable views um, and you're radicalized and you are or should be marginalized and you should be pushed past the uh, you know pushed outside of the of the norms of, of society. Uh, you should be an outcast. Mm-hmm. So that we, we're, you know, we're seeing strong a strong sense of polarization, and that's of course one of the great ironies with this idea of oneness. Whose idea of oneness is going to rise to the surface? Well, right. we're going to have a battle all, you know, along the way to even get there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, it, the, the sense of oneness, and, and this is important for your your listeners to grasp. I'll really quickly just break it down what it is. Sure. Oneness is this is this ultimate idea that man, God, and nature all share the same essence. There really is no fundamental difference between the three realms. The Christian point of view is no. Uh, it's not one. In fact, uh, my friend Dr. Peter Jones brings it, breaks it down really well as twoism, not dualism, because dualism says there's an equal, equal black, equal white, equal right, equal mm-hmm. wrong. No, Christianity is two, as in number two. Two is a God, distinct, completely unique, and then everything else. And so it places God in his own category, which is the biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. That's the very beginning of our biblical revelation. Mm-hmm. Out of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, God is, uh, by default, because of who he is, he is different than creation. He creates. He is different. He is distinct. And so already at that level, from a biblical point of view, this idea of oneness doesn't work. It falls apart. Mm-hmm. But then we see example after example after example of how man tries to find some unifying sense of oneness. And, and going back to Marxism and communism, Barbara Marx Hubbard, who was a, a leading occult thinker, she was a, a New Age thinker uh, over the past 50 or so years, she's now passed away, she described Marxism and communism as premature oneness. Um, it has, in, a, in essence, the right intent to make us one. It just didn't, just didn't do it uh, practically. It didn't do it properly. It, it, it actually shed way too much blood in the attempt to be uh, to be one. But she described it as as premature oneness. Mm-hmm. So, Carl, twenty twenty, critical race theory came on the scene big time, 
And you write in the book that it was resurrected and is being introduced to millions to help bring about the socialist Marxist plan for Western society. Um, so over the years, communist and socialist leaders have rallied the masses with the message of inequality, oppression, social justice, solution, economic equality. But critical race theory, CRT, now it's in the schools. It's in the universities. It's in the schools. How? What the churches. Ha- yeah, and in the churches. So I guess how did we get here? Short question, but, it, it, you know, it, it's all of a sudden back. Where was it before? Was it disguised as something else? Or, or were people just more wise to the fact that it really wasn't what it proclaimed to be? You know, it's been around for, for actually for quite a long time, but it, it's always been more or less uh, on the sidelines within the world of, of more radical academics. Um, and then it moved out of the realm of, of academia, radical academia, uh, anti, anti-capitalist academia, and, and so pro-socialist academia, and then move from there uh, to, to becoming more culturally accepted. You know, so much of what we're seeing in terms of, of the change in in our in our civilization has in many respects it ends up first being wrestled through within the world of especially high academia uh the intellectual class those who claim that they have a vision of what the world should already be thomas Sowell calls them the, the those individuals having the vision of the anointed they are self-anointed and therefore their vision holds the higher ground um, and so it's, it was actually it was around far before it became a, a, a common term, uh, especially uh, in the last few years. But as 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 our culture breaks down, and as truth is no longer accepted and is being continually redefined by the masses, then ideas like critical race theory all of a sudden have uh, a far far more of a push because there's this. This attempt to find, all right, what is what is our new ground? What is our new what is our new framework? What's the new what is our new morality? We we've rejected Christianity. Hmm. Uh, we've actually we've even rejected hardcore materialism, the ideas that that, that emerged uh, you know a number of, of generations ago. Uh, we're looking for something else, and so it's a, we're, we're in, entering this phase, this this time, the synth, you know, it's a synthesis between spirituality, pagan spirituality, and I'm meaning that in, in both of its broad sense and its and in its narrow scope. Mm. Uh, we're marrying spirituality with materialism. We're forming uh, this into a type of sacred secularism, a, a, a new mm. pagan faith in ourselves. And so when this happens, when we reject the foundations of Jesus Christ, uh, and look to find new foundations, um, it's shifting sand. Mm. And it's going to remain a shifting sand and for a long time. How do we find our grounding in all of this? Well, we got to see past the culture. we got to see past all the talking points. Yes. We've got to actually ground ourselves in something. No, we ground ourselves in someone Amen. who is true. Amen. Um. Carl, in this section of the chapter, Getting Our Terms Right, you start off with a quote that many of us have possibly heard. My church is a, has a social justice mandate. And so they think feeding the poor, helping the homeless at a homeless shelter or a safe house or assisting the elderly, they think that's social justice. But you, you clarify that it is not. 
That's compassion, and the church is called to be compassionate. Can you? What is the difference between these oh, two ideas? Compassion doesn't have a political, economic, social change agenda. <laughs> that, that's easy. Easy answer. There it is. We'll close now with Carl uh, Teichrib. Thank you for being on the program. No. So okay. So, but Carl, it's been the church has been deceived. The, I mean, it's we, we have generally a lot of churches have fallen for it. And pastors preach this, and they get politicized, right. and they get into this groupthink and the, the Marxist, you know, uh, influence of the social justice movement. And I, I actually want to point to one thing. You make a very good point on the biblical parable of the Good Samaritan that demonstrates true compassion. You say that um, if the Samaritan were a supporter of the dominant theme in th- social justice, he would have acted with a different motive. He would have used the occasion to lobby for social transformation. The robbers were really victims of an unjust polit- economic system. Who will pay for the victim's medical bills? So talk about that in a way that we can understand from a church perspective, This just helping being a good Samaritan. Right. You know, w- there is a... There is a, a, a good consequence, a, a social or general consequence uh, uh, to Christianity. Uh, freedom. Freedom is absolutely paramount to the Christian experience. As we've experienced uh, the freedom that comes from our sins being taken off of our shoulders, we also want to see freedom extended across the board. And, and, it, and it, that, that's one of the beautiful things that have happened, has happened. Uh, as, as a result of, of Christianity um, uh, really shaping the Western world. But the consequences we're describing here are consequences where we are no longer allowing the good that comes through that biblical worldview to, to change and shape society. Now what we want to do is we want to see society changed and shaped by, by our actions, with political and economic agendas in mind. So the, the idea of using the Samaritan and, and, uh, and that whole, that whole <laughs> little kind of little mental exercise was, yeah. was meant to say, look, um, make sure that we understand why we are acting with compassion. Are we acting with compassion because we represent Jesus Christ and we want you to be free? First of all, free from sin, and then all the other goods that may come along the way are wonderful. It, it, it's the gravy. But first and foremost, we need to make sure that, that we are acting in, in compassion in a way that first reflects what Jesus Christ wants reflected. Amen. Instead of saying we want, uh, we want to so-called act with compassion as we work for climate change, as we work for whatever the social justice theme is mm-hmm. of the day, whatever the flavor is of the day, and we're going to beat Group A right down on the ground to make it happen, so that Group B can 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 rise up uh, to a higher status. That's not compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tragedy. Yes, that's what that is. And so, again, in terms of getting our 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 terms right, I I applaud anyone who is working with orphans, who yes. is who, you know who, who are working with. Uh, at a soup kitchen, who are trying to to reach out to lives individually to bring a, something good into those lives, and at the same time, I, I pray as well that that the truth of Jesus Christ is now also being made known 
wonderful. That is compassion. Hmm. But it, it's not with strings attached. It's not with saying That's right. you know, we're going di- to dismantle society and then rebuild a, a temple mm-hmm. um, to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that distinction, yes. because I think that now when we read um, Jim Wallace and, and the, the writings of these other guys, you can hopefully the listener can understand the agendas involved. Yes. There as Christians, we have no agenda. We shouldn't have any agenda. We're here to serve. Um, but I, I really love that distinction that you made, and I mm-hmm. think that Christians need to be able to look at the social justice writers of the day and, and see them for who they yep. actually are, as opposed to claiming to be pastors or Christians. Yep. Carl, we have one minute left, and I just want to, first of all, wish you and your family a Merry Christmas, but where can people get those burnt waffle ornaments that your wife made? <laughs> <laughs> I want oh, wow. one. Yeah. Can you, t- can you tell that story real quick? We, we have a minute. One minute. <laughs> One minute. Okay, okay. Earlier, earlier. I think it was last. Maybe it was last week. I can't remember. Time all you know, kind of blurs after a while. We're 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 having supper, um, and and over supper we decided we the two of us wanted to watch a movie together. A good old Jerry Lewis movie. But all you know, over the course of the movie, we could smell something, something a little bit burnt. We we have waffles. We had waffles for supper, and it just didn't make sense. All of a sudden, two hours later or so, we're in the kitchen. There's a waffle still in the iron, and at this point, it has morphed. It, it, it's a trans waffle. Uh, it, it's it's now carbon, uh, <laughs> and it's hard as a rock. And so my wife, who is very creative, um, all of a sudden decorated the waffle and made this incredible little Christmas ornament. And it's on and your tree. Yeah. Yes, and I posted it on nice. Facebook for kicks and giggles, and my goodness, uh, the responses were amazing. Yeah. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, if you want- Hey, that's an idea for next next year, Carl. That's an idea. Yeah. you got to mass produce those. Yes. Hey, brother, thank you so much for all, all your great research. God bless you and your wife. You guys have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you. Likewise on your end. Have a great Christmas. All right. We'll talk to you again hopefully soon in the new year. Hey, tomorrow, friends, we've got Patrick Wood, Technocracy News, and Citizens for Free Speech. And we will uh, tackle a lot of these issues that we're dealing with today. God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.